Hi, this is Brian, co-host of the City Renewables podcast. This episode, we're doing something a little bit differently. Behind the scenes, we've been working to bring you different podcasting shows because we want to create City Renewables platform to be a channel for multiple different voices about renewable energy. And recently, Shreyanj hit us up and wanted to come on the podcast. And we said, you know what? We're going to give you your own show. He's that smart. He's writing a book right now. He's so connected. And he was like, we have to drop an episode right now because this guy, Jim Bishop, just hit me up and we have to tell his story. Guys, this is our pilot for Temp Check with Shrey. Enjoy. For more than 30 years, the science has been crystal clear. How dare you continue to look away and come here saying that you're doing enough when the politics and solutions needed are still nowhere in sight. You say you hear us and that you understand the urgency. But no matter how sad and angry I am, I do not want to believe that. Because if you really understood the situation and still kept on failing to act, then you would be evil, and that I refuse to believe. Welcome to a very special episode of the City Renewables podcast. I got Shreyanch. He's going to be having his own show on our channel here, but he hit me up recently. He was like, I have this awesome guest. He's a pilot. He's seen a lot of things and he wants to talk to us uh, about climate change. And I thought, you know what? We have got to get this episode out immediately. So I'm so excited to introduce to you the the, the newest host of the City Renewables podcast, Shreyanch. Uh, just kind of say hello and give me a you know just a, a quick brief on who you are and how you got connected with Ben. Oh, hi guys. So I am Shreyansh and I am a graduating senior at the George Washington University. Uh, very interested in climate change and the environment and conservation, things like that. And that's how I got connected with Ben. I was looking at, you know, organizations who want to do something at in a grassroots level around the D.C. area. And I found Ben was taking the lead on solar uh, and you know renewables in general around the dmv so i thought i should probably just hit him up you know pitch him the plan for a podcast see what he feels about you know just talking to people about renewables and climate change and then we just hit it up and i guess that's how i'm here on the show today so thanks for having me uh brian yeah no problem at all and how did you uh, run into jim uh, I actually am writing a book on climate change and uh, my book primarily focuses more on stories of people who have seen things than data. The reason I'm, I'm doing this is because I feel, you know, it's, I feel it's easier for people to connect if there are stories than data. And I feel that stories need to, needed to be more efficiently told than just numbers and data. And that's so I was really looking for these stories on the on the Internet and I was reaching out to people using emails, Facebook messaging, Twitter messages, LinkedIn, that kind of thing. And that's how I met Jim. 
and uh, the story Jim told me about you know climate change and what he saw in his life is something I thought was worth sharing not just with you Brian or Ben but like with everyone else that I could possibly share with and that is the reason why I you know I just got him on uh, your show today Jim, you know, uh, thank you for joining the show. Um, I'm excited to hear your story. Why don't you just kick us off with a little introductory? You know, why did you start caring about climate change? Give us a little bit of a background about Jim Bishop. Sure. I um, uh, finished up my degree in 1967, and uh, my family and I, my two daughters and I moved to Dillingham, Alaska, which is out on the Bering Sea coast on Bristol Bay, uh, to get away uh, from uh, the city and all the preoccupations with the war that were going on. There was this little dust up in Vietnam, you might remember. And, uh, and, that, and as soon as I got to Alaska, I started learning to fly and I, after three years or so, qualified to uh, fly for some of the air taxis up there and uh, eventually ended up uh, operating an airline of my own um, that traveled uh, to uh, airports all over uh, the Arctic in Alaska. And uh, in 1985, uh, July of 1985, my high school sweetheart came up to, uh, by this time I was divorced, my high school sweetheart came up to Cordova, and I took her out in an airplane on one of those rare days um, when it's a calm wind and no sea running and uh, bright sunshine and just absolutely exquisitely beautiful. And we flew in this uh, de Havilland seaplane that I was flying. It's a wonderful airplane, uh, carries uh, nine people, I think, and this one was fitted with pontoons. And so we went to the Columbia Glacier calving face, which is at that, which at that time was uh, at the bottom of the uh, Columbia Glacier Valley, just across from Glacier Island. Uh, the, the Columbia River, uh, the Columbia Glacier Valley is uh, north of Valdez. It's the next big valley north of Valdez. And at that time, the calving face was right down just across a little inlet from Glacier Island, fully extending the glacier from the peaks of the mountain range down into the ocean. And uh, I found a place where I could get the airplane on the water safely between all the chunks of ice that were floating around there and stopped and chipped a big chunk of ice off of, I collected a floating piece of ice that was maybe 20 pounds or so and threw it in the back of the airplane and took it back to Cordova and chipped ice off of that and put it in my drinks and felt very sophisticated <laughs> because the ice I was putting in my scotch was thousands of years old. But that the point is that the face of the glacier in the July of 1985, I can absolutely testify, was at the bottom of, of the glacial valley. Now, if you look at uh, Google Earth, you trace that valley back 
from its mouth to where the present glacier is calving, it's about 15 miles back up the valley. From July of 1985 until now, it's retreated about 15 miles. And I'm told by glaciologists that the present state of the glacial calving phase is where it will probably remain for a good long time. It's, a it's melted back to a, a berm in the bottom of the valley where the glacier can come down and kind of abut against it and it stops the forward motion of the ice and it calves off at that point well up in the valley. By the time uh, the ice gets down to the ocean, it's pretty well all melted. And that raises another kind of question about the subject we're talking about. There's been a very serious change in the fisheries of Prince William Sound. A lot of people depend upon and have for decades and decades depended upon Prince William Sound to provide a, a source for uh, salmon and herring and whales and shrimp and flounder and all kinds of uh, ocean life. And the assumption was made in after 1989 and the time that the Exxon Valdez crashed at the at the opening of the uh, Valdez arm it crashed against a rock and dumped millions of gallons of very heavy oil onto the surface of Prince William Sound and corrupted the beaches and the inlets all over clear out to Kodiak there's evidence of that oil the feeling was that the reason that the herring stopped coming and the salmon stopped coming and and uh, the damage that was done to the spawn, the uh, the uh, returning ocean animals was caused by the oil. And a friend of mine is a marine biologist at the University of Alaska, and they recently finished a uh, research project and concluded that it was not the oil that destroyed or damaged seriously the fisheries in Prince William Sound. It was the rapid, excessively rapid melting of the ice cover and snow cover of the mountain range that provides the Columbia Glacier with its ice. And the excessively rapid melting of the ice has changed the chemistry of the water in Prince William Sound and it's become much more brackish and ocean life comes into there and they're they're not comfortable with it. So it it, it takes the burden off of uh, the oil company but it puts it right back on us who are involved in doing things that are causing the atmosphere to warm which is causing the ice to melt, which is causing the water to run into the ocean and diluting the areas in our ocean along the shorelines, probably everywhere, and changing the chemistry so that the creatures that live close to shoreline around the world are probably being adversely affected by this rapid melting. 
pretty amazes me is is the fact that it's shocking not just like you know how fast these glaciers are receding but also the fact that glaciers receding changes the chemistry of water and changes changes fisheries around the area and then at the end of the day it's really about people and public policy it changes lives uh for for as just as like how you know jim pointed out uh, particularly around the Columbia Glacier region, you know, we had this glacier retreating, and the retreat caused a death in of of the fishing industry around the area. Uh, in several other parts of the world, particularly Himalayas, you know, you have a, a good uh, amount of like I guess 400 to 450 glaciers in the Himalayas that have these rivers originating from them that you know at the end of the day, make sure that the Indian subcontinent uh, gets plenty of water. You know, South Asia in general just gets plenty of water. So every single river depends on that. China too, yeah. And the Pearl and the Yangtze, uh, Yellow River, all of those have their source in the Himalayas. And I've been to Tiger Leaping Gorge in uh, north of Hunan province, and at the time I was there, the uh, Yangtze River was raging across it. It was really intimidating to go and see what happens in that mountain valley when that river's rushing across it. But uh, the ice is going away, and uh, with that will be the demise of all those great rivers in Asia, and it provides uh, necess necessary sustenance for about almost three billion people. Food security issue, really. You know, you'll you'll see agriculture uh, being one of the biggest industries that's hit at the very beginning. And once you have agriculture being hit due to climate change, it's a food security issue. Where are you? Where are you finding food to feed these many billions of people? I think you know the the story with Columbia Glacier in Alaska. It's particularly interesting to me because. You see the glacier receding, and then you see its effect on fisheries and local population of, you know, salmon and herring and, and other fish species and stuff like that. And why? But why? Why is it changing um, the fishing in certain areas? Why does, you know, what is, is, is it more water? I know you touched on it a little bit, Jim, but I kind of want to get into more specific on you know how why that effect is happening well it, it's it's it you know that's the interesting thing about this big problem we're having is that it's really simple we have moved the average temperature of the atmosphere from minus 0 0.2 degrees to plus 0 0.6 or a little more in the progress of doing that, we have moved it through the, free, the melting point of water. It seems unreasonable that such a small change in the temperature, less than a degree, could cause such tremendous change until it, really, until it dawns on people that we've gone through the melting point of ice. And having done that, we have turned the devil loose. The Arctic Ocean is losing its ice cover. Now we've got the albedo that's coming out of that that's creating a cycle of problems. Uh, you've got uh, the, uh, the resulting melting of the littoral around the Arctic Ocean and the 
development of, of uh, uh, explosions of methane coming up out of the melting uh, permafrost. All of these things are the consequence of a very small initial change in the average temperature of the atmosphere that took us through the melting point of water. Now it's starting to rush on us. It's, it's starting uh, other aspects of the environment to, they were frozen, but now they're not frozen anymore, so they start to rot, so they start to produce methane. Methane's a more dangerous gas, and that gas increases and accelerates the heating of the atmosphere, and it's running away from us, and if we don't do something pretty soon, and does methane not like does it stay in water? Is that why it affects uh, the the fishing? Like how, like what are the effects that methane has? I know it. Gas, it come it's it's found all kinds of places. It's kind of found in the exhaust stream of a herd of cattle, in our own exhaust stream. It's found in in uh, places where they're drilling for. Uh, nitric, natural gas, it comes off of oil fields, and it is uh, the result of any kind of organic material that, that starts to rot. It produces methane as it rots. And so when you have this area that's the borderline of the Arctic Ocean that surrounds the Arctic Ocean, it is, you know, 50, 60, 80, 100 feet deep in frozen, frozen uh, moss and other vegetable material that's been frozen there for hundreds of thousands of years, permanently frost, hence it's frozen, hence it's named permafrost. And now it's thawing, and it's producing tremendous amounts of methane. There are places in northern Canada where people can stick a hole in the top of the ice on a lake and bubbles of methane are down there, and they can set fire to them, and they'll burn all summer long. And they're in places in Siberia where they have eruptions coming up out of the layers of uh, permafrost that blow a big hole in the surface of the, of the uh, uh, countryside in order to release the pressure of the methane that's being generated underneath. The uh, oceanic survey that the Russians ran along the northern shore of Siberia, uh, they were looking for a, a, a large methane uh, uh, explosions or discharges. They found places where the ocean was just kind of boiling because there was so much methane coming up out of the melting permafrost underneath the water, underneath the ocean water. You have warm water coming into the ocean off the shoreline, and it runs in, and because it's uh, uh, warmer, it starts to thaw the ocean bottom. And as it thaws that ocean bottom, it releases methane, and the methane comes to the surface, and they found places where the surface of the water appeared to be boiling that were several kilometers across. And those gaseous discharges are methane, and it's you, you can you can see all kind of numbers, but the one I stick with is about 37 times more powerful as a greenhouse gas than CO2. But you can find people that say a little more, and some people that right. say a little less. But all of this comes down to the fact that we've gone through the melting point of water, 
<laughs> so, so Jim, really to, to boil down to the question, um, what, like how exactly has this methane production, you know, hampered the fishing industry around the area? Was it j just the methane or was it something, you know, because the glaciers retreated, water chemistry changed that was not, you know, habitable for like the fishes that call the area home? What exactly was going on with the fishes around the area? I don't think that the methane in the atmosphere, I don't have any basis for saying that that in itself is dangerous to the fishery. But if you raise the temperature of the atmosphere and millions of billions of tons of ice change from ice to water, and that water rushes into the shoreline, little uh, fjords and valleys and, and uh, 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 alcoves uh, in the along the shoreline, Prince William Sound is, is uh, replete with narrow, uh, deep fjords, uh, very mountainous valleys that are buried in the, in the ocean water. And you run those large quantities, an abnormal amount of fresh water into those, and you dilute the salt water. You dilute right. the uh seawater, change its chemistry. It's the warmth, it's the warming of the atmosphere caused by the CO2 and uh, that we're putting into it with our cars and other things. And the methane, which is another really super dangerous greenhouse gas, that's, that's coming as a, that, that is getting into the atmosphere as a result of our petrochemical industries activities and agriculture. And also because we're, we're melting large areas of vegetation that have been frozen for the last millions of years and now they're melting and starting to rot. To, you know, just follow up on that, uh, over the last couple of years or maybe a decade or so since all of this started happening, like, you know, in Alaska or anywhere in the world probably, have you seen some sort of general public resentment or something from the government being done or at least, you know, a conversation popping up, let's say about Columbia Glacier in general, and like you know people trying to address the problem or like just acknowledging it and saying that hey our glacier the columbia glacier is retreating and we gotta do something about it has has you know the state government of alaska done something about it are universities trying to you know uh, advocate for it is there something going on well i think columbia glacier is an excellent example because it has a long valley, and Google has this historical sequence you can get on Google Earth, where you can see the the uh, the melting of the glacier and its retraction up the valley, starting in about like 1964. They flash a bunch of pictures that show you the satellite images, so that you can see it retreating back up the valley. Yeah, I think people are concerned about the Columbia Glacier, but it's such a is as immense as the Columbia Glacier is, the problem that it is symbolic of is so much bigger. And no, I don't see my government, the United States government, uh, getting off its hind end to do anything about uh, climate change. In fact, uh, this dimwit we have for a president calls it a hoax still, which is just boneheaded, you know, it's just ignorant. Uh, every, I spent eight years in China, and uh, there, they're very conscious of the fact that the water table under Hebei Province, as an example, Hebei Province is a huge 
province of China that includes Beijing and Tianjin and a mountain range that uh, uh, stretches clear to the Three Gorges Dam. And uh, the water table, it goes down, they thought, about a meter a year, but now they've discovered it's going down more like three meters a year. The water for Beijing is having to be taken out of an aquifer that was supposed to be reserved for wartime use only. That's over a kilometer deep under the city. Every once in a while, they have to think about moving the city of Beijing, 22 million people, because literally they are running completely out of water. Not They're not getting water short or thirsty. They're talking about having the whole area turned into a desert. Wow. And that's the consequence of, that's the consequence of these great glaciers in the Himalayas. One of the reasons is the consequence of the great glaciers in the Himalayas that are disappearing. And it's all, again, very simple. It's just that we've let the temperature increase, even though it's a small Other amount, it's increased through what other the effects, melting point yep. of ice. What other effects can we expect, Jim? Um, you know, I, I know I read a lot about, you know, natural disasters. Is, is this something that just kind of raises the sea level around coastlines and then makes hurricanes even worse? Um, you know, what kind of, you know, effects can we be looking at uh, glacier melting? What is that going to cause? Well, the... Uh, atmosphere is absorbing uh, about 90% of the solarization uh, that comes in from the sun in terms of excessive heat. So the ocean is absorbing it. The ocean is absorbing that energy and getting warmer. With every degree of increase in the temperature of the uh, atmosphere over the ocean, the evaporation rate increases by 10%. So when you have a temperature increase of 5 degrees, you get a 50% increase in the amount of water that's in the atmosphere. I mean, these numbers kind of change around as you read different authors. But I, I use 10% because I can remember how it works. But you'll see some say people say in 7, some people say in 12. But the point is that these changes are all the consequence of a very small average increase in the atmosphere but now you have all this extra water in the atmosphere which means that in the in in if there is a storm where it's going to rain it has 150 or 200 percent of the water that you're used to the storm having to drop on you that's why here in, in houston a few years ago just like three years ago they had three feet of rain in a few hours. Uh, that's because those clouds coming in and off the Gulf of Mexico were heavily huge uh, concentrations of atmospheric moisture that when it decided to start falling was going to come down in a torrent. And, that's, and then also that increases not necessarily the number of hurricanes that are going to come in off the Atlantic, but when they do come, they're going to be Makes much sense. stronger. Uh, yeah, because they've got a whole lot more temperature to drive them. The oceanic temperatures are higher, and 
they're laden with more water. And I don't see my government doing anything remotely close to enough to, uh, I mean, there's a great guy, Gwen Dyer, he's a, a, a Canadian uh, uh, reporter, investigative reporter. He's done a lot of work on environmental questions. And uh, he's got a film clip on YouTube you can find, Gwen Dyer. He's a, really a great guy. He did a, he did a series on PBS about war that was, I think, the best that's ever been done. But in any event, with regard to uh, climate change, he said everybody at these climate change conventions knows exactly what the solution to this problem is, what's going to have to be. But nobody seriously thinks that we're ever going to do it. In the case of the United States, we would have to reduce our personal, our national carbon footprint by like 85%. And that would require immense changes in our way of life. Yeah, I, I don't see that happening. And then in addition, in, yeah, and in addition, we have to reach down in our pockets and pull out the, man, the money required to build energy generation capability, solar, wind, hydro, hydroelectric, or, or nuclear, in order to provide third world countries with electricity. They've been sitting watching the TV. They know what our lifestyle's like. They don't buy into the idea that they should continue to live in mud huts and that we should escape the penalty for the kind of lifestyle that we've engaged in uh, painlessly. And after all, since 1981, when Jim Hansen from NOAA uh, printed a paper on the front page of the New York Times, we've known, anybody that could read and read Jim Hansen's paper knew what we were doing and what was going to happen. He forecast exactly the circumstances that we're living through now. And his prognosis for the future is really enough to turn your hair white if we don't do some make some changes. He's found evidence of storms in the Caribbean that existed at a time when atmospheric CO2 was just about where it is right now. Uh, storms that had winds of three, four, and 500 miles an hour. And picking up, picking, so we're, we're on our way to a, a you know, a, an insurmountable problem if we don't wake up. And we find ourselves with a, a a disease that's crushed our economy and we're being led by a moron. Since we are about time, uh, just to like sum our conversation up, you know, you came out, you had this story about Columbia Glacier and your experience with the glacier receding. 
you know and you just had you just told your story and you narrated what you thought was going on with Columbia Glacier and climate change in general is there a message that you'd want to tell to a broader broader audience uh, you know as like I don't know something that is an extract from your story that you just want people to know or is there something in particular that you'd want people to be more cognizant about or, or anything like that? Well, I can say I spent thousands of hours flying over the mountains and oceans and lakes and rivers of Alaska, starting in 1966. And I did it until 1985. And then I came outside and started flying around North America more. Uh, I watched it decay. But now, Columbia Glacier is big, it's huge, it's immense, it's beautiful, but it's just a small emblem, a symbol, of what's happening in every glacial valley on the face of the earth, to one degree or another. The glaciers are all disappearing. The oceans are rising because they're heating up and because they're being filled by the melting going on, on mountain, in mountain valleys and on Greenland and Antarctica. The last time this CO2 was this high in the atmosphere, we know that the oceans were 50 feet deeper. And we are sitting here drinking our beer or watching the TV and acting like we don't have to worry about something like that. Well, we do. What happens if the oceans come up 50 feet in Pakistan, Bangladesh, Los Angeles, London? You know, it is just an immense problem. Think about the problems in Florida, right around Biscayne Bay there at uh, Miami. How about it if the oceans come up 10 feet? There are houses along the shoreline there that have that are multi-million dollar houses that are going to be valueless. But that says nothing about the situation in Bangladesh where people are going to have to leave there. Millions of them, 140 million people, so I have to get out of there. They got no choice. And India is already building a wall to prevent them from coming th into India. I mean, this is a, a tragedy of biblical perform, uh, proportions. This, this thing we're having with this disease is just a, a game compared to what we're going to face. And so I, I guess the, the message I have is, you know, wake up, Jesus, wake up. Everything I've said, everything I've said is, doesn't involve any chemistry beyond, you know, high school. And why was there, it's so why, the can, you, why can you reference the CO2 levels of different times? You know, have we seen the planet this hot before? Well, you got the, the classic, uh, what uh, some uh, glaciologists call the, the canonical proof is uh, the British ice core expedition, our, our, uh, Antarctic 
Ice Corps expedition years ago, several years ago, went to a place they'd located using radar images of the underlying terrain, and they drilled a hole in the ice and went down uh, 800,000 years. And they pulled that col the column of ice up in pieces and kept track of its depth. And at each layer in that column, there are trapped bubbles of, of air that comes from the atmosphere that existed at the time that the snow fell. So we have a very accurate, somebody that a glaciologist does, I'm just jabbering what I read, but the, the, the glaciologists have an accurate measurement of the chemistry of the atmosphere that goes back 800,000 years. And they're getting better ones that are even longer. There are other ways that they can do this too. Our uh, uh, geologists can measure the uh, uh, surrounding chemistry of the atmosphere by analyzing rocks. But this one's much more easier to understand. It's an actual bubble that was stored there by the falling snow uh, at whatever date corresponds to the depth of that column of ice. So we know exactly what the atmosphere has been doing over the course of 800,000 years. And we know that in the course of that 800,000 years, it has never increased very much over 350 parts per million. And then it starts back down. Yeah. CO2 we're talking about. But today, as you and I are sitting here, it's at 417 parts per, per million. And it's going straight up. It's higher than it has ever been on Earth for 800,000 years. Wow. Jim, man, you're really scaring me. I think that's the point. Uh, you know, without, you know, discussing the information without diving into the details without talking to people who have personal experience of something like watching uh, a glacier retreat um, you don't really get to uh, you know feel it taste it absorb the information and you've done a very good job on this podcast just kind of breaking it all down uh, making it digestible and I think that's how we're gonna have to reach your typical person you know I think sometimes, you may call it just high school chemistry, but high school chemistry is a lot for people to, you know, understand and obtain. So, you know, I think you've done a very good job in this uh, episode here, yeah. just kind of uh, breaking down the, the fear, you know, of what we could be facing coming up if we don't take uh, huge strides. The question I have is we see companies like Amazon setting goals to go completely renewable energies by 2040. We continue to see the private sector outperform our government in different initiatives. Um, not obviously not all businesses, but you know, your, your businesses that can afford a science department like Amazon. Is that going to be enough? Are, is the private sector going to lead the way here? Is 2040 still too far away? Well, I, I've managed in the course of this broadcast to make myself sad that I've started thinking about questions that I hadn't thought about maybe because I just couldn't stand it. No, I, I don't think I don't think anybody 
should be thinking in terms of 2040 or 2050. If you look at the data, we have lost over 50% of the mass of oceanic krill in the last decade due to the change in the temperature of the surface layer of the ocean. Krill are the fundamental layer of the food chain in the oceans. And if we lose krill, we lose the next larger creatures that feed on the krill and the next larger feeder creatures that live on those and all the way up to whales. In fact, uh, whales that are, are uh, filter feeders are floating ashore having starved to death right now. We have whales coming ashore dead from starvation, they think, that are in such numbers that we can't get rid of them. The oceans are about to collapse. Not in 20 years. Some people think within the next decade. And that's not something you can cure by going to an electric car or stop traveling in airplane because this, the effects that we're feeling right now are the consequence of greenhouse gases that were put in the atmosphere 25, 30 years ago. It takes that long for them to get up into the atmosphere where they have the effect. We haven't even begun to experience the impact of the big forest fires we've been burning and number of cars we've gone. When I when I moved I moved to China in two thousand two to teach at a university, my wife and I did. At that time there were no cars in Baoding, China. Essentially I mean, none, none of the faculty at the university had a car. By the time we left there, everybody had a car. And the roads were jammed, just like parking lots. Huge. Beijing is a big city that's got rings around it. You know, the big, it's supposed to be provide thoroughfares to, for rapid transportation. You get out on one of those uh, great circles around the center of Beijing, and it's a big parking lot. We, in order, in order to, to have any chance of stopping this from becoming a, a, a complete collapse involving a number of people, a growing number of people are saying that involving the extinction of human life. To avoid that, we have to make changes that are very difficult to make and it's really hard to convince people in the United States that it's necessary if you have a president who calls it a hoax. Uh, 